0: 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, Peter says the following. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass. In all its glory, like the fr- flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. Peter calls the people of God to a sincere brotherly love, since they have been, again, in his words, born again, not of a perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The fact that we have been born again, given the new birth, birth from an imperishable seed, a seed that will never perish, a seed that will never fade away, one that will never fail. The fact that we have been born again through that kind of seed in that way requires a new way of living. It requires an earnest, at least an earnest and sincere love of the brethren. Since we began the letter to James, we've considered the overall theme of the letter that simply put, true faith works. True faith manifests itself in good works. If there are no good works to accompany a professed faith, then it is likely that there is no true faith at all. Last week we began in James chapter 1 considering the true, that true faith has a different perspective on life and particularly on trials. Those who have true faith believe that there is purpose in trials. Trials are not haphazard events intended for our discouragement. To the contrary, trials, which we're all bound to have, all take place in the context of the sovereign control of God. In fact, in accord with the mercy of God to us, our trials, the testing of our faith, leads to endurance. And endurance is what we need in order to have spiritual maturity. Knowing this, believers can and should rejoice when we encounter various trials. This is the attitude that we ought to have as those who have been brought forth by the word of truth, as James says. Those who have been born again by that imperishable seed that Peter mentions. But we all know that there are some trials that we encounter which are so significant, so painful, that it's difficult for us to think that way about trials. There are some times when it's difficult for us to consider Certain kinds of trials as a source of joy. It's difficult for us to think that the Lord is at work on our behalf in the midst of it. It's difficult to know how to respond to those trials. And while we believe that the Lord wouldn't put more on us than we can handle, it doesn't always feel that way. In those times, we need to seek the Lord for his grace. After exhorting us to consider our trials as a source of joy, exhorting us to think differently about our trials, remembering that those things lead to endurance and endurance leads to spiritual maturity, he also reminds us that if we have difficulty taking this attitude, that we must pray and ask the Lord for wisdom. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn back to chapter 1 in the letter of James I'm going to read again chapter 1 for us for context, but we're focused in just on verses 5 through 8 this morning. James chapter 1. Again, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and it withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Your word does sanctify us, and we pray that you would speak this morning for your servants are listening. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. You are our rock and our redeemer amen well there are two main movements in this text just these short few these few verses the first in verse 5 where James says simply if you need help responding in faith to trials pray in verses 6 to 8 he says when you pray pray in faith it's very simple you need help responding to trials pray and when you pray pray in faith well let's look at that first point if you need help in responding in faith to your trials then you must pray verse five again if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him he says if any of you lacks wisdom again if we're just popping into this section for the first time you might ask the question lacks wisdom for what Well, it's just what he said earlier. If you lack wisdom, again, when it comes to responding in faith to your trials, remember, again, when James started this section, this introductory section in chapter one of the major themes of the letter, he's putting together this whole argument in the context of the trials that we face. He mentions trials multiple times in chapter one. That's a main theme that he's trying to introduce for the rest of the letter. Trials will come. Our confidence is not that we can avoid trials. It's not that God will rescue us from every individual trial that happens in life on this side of eternity. Neither of those things are promised in God's word. Our confidence is that there will be no wasted trials, but that God will work through our trials to bring us to maturity. Again, the testing of our faith produces endurance and endurance. So long as we let endurance have its perfect work in our lives, endurance will lead to spiritual maturity. We need endurance more than we need temporary escape. I made that point last week. We must learn to think differently about our trials in order to let endurance have its perfect work, in order to not fight against or disregard the character development that God is working in our lives through our trials. We need to think differently. We need to see our trials through the eyes of faith, but that's not always easy to do. So again, James says, if any of you lack wisdom, Seeing true trials through the eyes of faith and responding in faith then pray. Now, of course, the fact that he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, suggests that it is possible to lack wisdom in how we respond in faith to trials. We often think that we have to fake some semblance of super spiritual Christianity when it comes to our trials. We go through hardship and someone asks us how we're doing and what do we usually say? Good fine. I'm blessed. I mean, which of course that's true, but we don't feel that way. We may be crumbling on the inside, struggling, not really knowing how we're going to get through the difficulty that we face, but we put on a good face for others. We lack wisdom, but we don't want to let anyone know for fear that we will appear weak spiritually, unchristian-like. As if to be a Christian means that we never struggle with our trials. Where that assumption came from, I don't know, because it's not in Scripture. All of us will struggle in some way with our trials. That is why they're called trials, because it tests our faith. Remember the definition of the term endurance, being able to bear up under intense weight or pressure. There is actual weight, actual pressure bearing down on us when we have trials our faith is being tested no one should look at you funny or question you for feeling like your faith is being tested because that's just life that's reality life is hard and again sometimes it's just difficult for us to figure out how to respond in trials especially as that pressure builds As that weight starts to weigh on us and the heat from the fire is stoked. Those times we need wisdom. We've talked about wisdom before. In biblical theology, wisdom is skill for living. It is skill for living in a world in which God is the sovereign ruler and judge We all need that sort of skill. We need skill to live well before the Lord. And particularly as we face the various trials that James is referencing here, we need skill to know how to respond well to those things. Pursuing life wisely, exercising wisdom in all of life is akin to the description in Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 8 that we had for our scripture reading earlier. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Put your confidence solely in him. Look to him as a source of all that is good and right and true. See him as a standard of what is good and right and true. Do not lean to your own understanding. Don't assume that you know better. Don't assume that you know what is right. Don't assume you can figure it out on your own. That's a very worldly sentiment. The idea that we can and should figure out life on our own apart from God. That's the heartbeat of the LGBTQ plus agenda, for example. We can and should determine our own gender regardless of biology biology says one thing and the world says oh well we are all about science and not about faith right science 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 Well, biology is is science driven and it's pretty clear that you have a male and you have a female and the only way for a species to continue on is if you have a male and a female it's not rocket science but it is science And yet they struggle with that and they struggle with it because they don't want to be put into a box, so to speak, and they don't want to follow what God has said. They want to figure it out on their own. They want to do their own thing the reality is that figure it out on your own mentality is a nice sentiment, but it doesn't really work in real life. I mean, you can't tell a police officer as you're driving in a 50 miles per hour in a 25 mile per hour zone, you can't tell them that, hey, you know, I saw the speed limit, but I really felt like I should be driving 50 right now. <laughs> I mean, you can't just tell a police officer that and expect not to have anything happen. He may just, you know, identify as someone who arrests you on the spot. And the reality is that in a civilized society, we don't get to decide which laws we follow and which laws we don't. In order to have an ordered and established society, there have to be laws. Someone has to determine a standard. If we understand that that's true in the context of the normal course of society in which we live, why should it be any different with God? Why should we then say to God, oh no, you don't get to tell me how I live? It's okay for the government to tell me how to live, but you, my creator, you don't get to tell me how to live and what to do. James says, there's only one lawgiver and judge. We live in his world. Therefore, we need wisdom. We need to trust in him and not lean to our own understanding. You want to walk in a way that is straight, in a way that is good and right and true. Well, trust in the Lord. That's the point of Proverbs 3. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Turn away from evil. There's refreshment. There's healing. Do you get that? That's biblical wisdom. It's turning to the Lord. It's walking in the fear of him. It's acknowledging him in all your ways. We need that when we're going through difficulty and trials. I mean, how do you respond in faith when your relationship with someone is strained? There's conflict there. Maybe you try to reconcile. You try to respond to their rudeness with kindness. You try to respond to their irrationality with reason. You want to reconcile, but there doesn't seem to be a way forward. How do you respond in faith in that situation? Maybe you were the one who gave an offense. You've wounded someone else. You've seen the error of your ways. You try to seek forgiveness, but they don't want to hear it. How do you respond in faith in that situation? How do you respond in faith when your body has failed you? You're looking at a lengthy season of illness or even a terminal illness. How do you respond in faith when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired? For that matter, how do you respond in faith when you're caring for someone else for whom that is true? They are weak. They are sick. They're struggling to survive. You want to support them and care for them, but you don't always know how to. How do you respond in faith when your finances are not where they need to be. Perhaps you've lost your job or you're going to lose your job. You're not sure how it's going to work out going forward. Or some other significant challenge that tests your faith unkindness or threats from a neighbor, a coworker, a classmate, pressure from a boss or other authority figure to lie or cheat at work. A wayward child or grandchild whose life choices have led to disaster for them, for those around them, and for family. The discouragement of your life not having turned out the way you first envisioned. Perhaps you're single but wanted to be married. You're married but you wanted to be single. You're poor and struggling through life. You're rich but you have more problems because you got more money. Maybe you're friendless. Maybe you have friends but they're not faithful. They're not encouraging. They're not good to you. Let's not even begin to discuss the issues that Christians in the Ukraine whose homes and neighborhoods are being bombed. Or other such countries or Christians in China and various places in the Middle East who can't even meet openly for fear of persecution. Fear of losing their lives as a result. How do you respond in faith to those kinds of situations? We need wisdom for that. We need skill to live well and to respond by faith in those situations. The anomaly in the Christian life, beloved, is not that sometimes we have difficulty responding in faith to trials. It's not that sometimes we struggle with our trials. The anomaly in the Christian life is when the Christian fails to admit that they're struggling with their trials. They fail to admit they're struggling in responding in faith And they never ask for help. They never express their faith in God by acknowledging him in all their ways. And they tend not to ask others for help either. They just sit and struggle. Again, they put on a good face on the outside. That's not what's going on on the inside. Inside, they're depressed, brokenhearted, drifting away from the community of believers. We see this all the time. They drift away from their spiritual disciplines and ultimately from the very source of wisdom, the Lord Jesus himself. But getting back to James, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God. Ask God for wisdom. This is a reference to prayer, simply put. And I know sometimes we think of prayer as this kind of super spiritual, highly formal religious act by which we must put a cloak on our shoulders, a covering on our head. We bow low. We speak in old King James English in order to properly pray to God. That's not what the Bible envisions. Some people, when they think of prayer, they think of prayer that way. Oh, it's so hard. It's so difficult. I don't know if I can do that. I'm intimidated by prayer. Why, though? I mean, it's just you have conversations with other people. You can have a conversation with God. It's just speaking to him. That's all it is. It's a conversation. There's no special formula for it. If you can talk to someone, anyone, then you can talk to God. And if you can talk to someone, anyone, while other people are standing around, then you can talk to God in a corporate prayer service, too. Ahem. I mean, you can say in Jesus name afterward, but you don't you don't have to, because the reality is that anyone who's a Christian is praying in Jesus name. That's how we come to God. That's how we have a relationship with him is through Jesus. You must be born again. You must have the forgiveness of Christ. You must have the life of Christ in you. You must have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then you can have confidence that God hears your prayer. Because again, he is the one who gives us access to God. And when you think of prayer, that's what you should think. I'm simply speaking with God. Prayer is, in its essence, an act of faith. It's an act of faith by which you're trusting that there is actually someone there to hear you, that that someone is good, that someone is inclined to listen to you, that someone is able to help you. They're inclined to help you. They will hear. They are able to help. They are inclined to help. They will help you, and they will give you good things as a result. Prayer is an act of faith. Perhaps it's one of the most basic yet profound acts of our faith. I think that James uses the word ask intentionally here as we're thinking about what prayer is. We talked about the relationship between James's letter and Jesus's teaching, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, listen to Matthew chapter 7. Again, Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus says there, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be open or which one of you if his son asks him for bread will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish will he give him a serpent if you then who are evil Jesus knew how to talk to people right You know how to be politically correct. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts, give good things to those who ask him? Have you heard any messages on this particular passage of scripture? You know that Jesus is talking about a continual process here, an attitude of constantly praying, asking and seeking and knocking. And he says that we are to constantly be asking, seeking, and knocking in order to to have the door open, in order to receive, in order to be given, because we have a father who is in heaven, who is good and who gives good gifts to his children. If you've been born again, if you've trusted in Christ, then you are adopted into the family of God. He doesn't see you just as, as a religious participant. He sees you as a faithful son or daughter because you are in his faithful son. And so there's no prayer that he would refuse you. Just as sure as he would listen to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his beloved son in whom he's well pleased, he will listen to your prayer because you're in his son by faith. Again, prayer is an act of faith. It's one of the most basic yet profound acts of faith. It's an act of faith by which a child of God who is in need calls out to their heavenly father with the confidence that he will hear and provide And when we pray, that's our confidence. It's rooted in who God is, regardless of the trial. To be clear, our confidence in prayer is not because of the many words that we say when we pray. It's not because we are so eloquent in our prayers or because we use a certain formula to pray to God. It's not because we always do good until we expect him to answer us because we're good little children. And so if we do bad, then we don't pray because we don't think God's going to hear us. Now, we expect him to hear and answer whenever we call and however we call, whether we call out in triumph or in weakness, we expect him to hear and answer because he is good and because he is a good father to us. Now, this passage communicates nothing else to you. It must communicate to you that you, Christian, ought to be a person of prayer. There should be no prayer warriors. I know we love to throw that term around in Christi- Christianity. But everyone should be a prayer warrior. Everyone is commanded, pray without ceasing. Amen. All of us have those same commands. There are no special prayer warriors. All of us ought to be praying fervently. And to the point of this passage, especially praying in the midst of our trials. I listen again to James' words as he's underscoring the confidence that we have. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Pray. Who is God? He is the one who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Again, our confidence is that we pray to a God who is our Father by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ. Our confidence is that this God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom we pray, is a good God. Again, the text says he's one who gives generously. Some have suggested that the, tra- the word translated generously should be understood as undividedly, meaning that God has a singular focus of intent to give to those who are his. Or perhaps it should be translated as giving sincerely without hesitation. I think the point's still the same. God is a giver. He is given to meet our greatest need, the need for forgiveness in Christ. We sang earlier how deep the father's love for us. He's met our greatest need by sending his son, Jesus, to bleed and die for us. What do you think he would withhold from us at this point? If you, as his adopted son or daughter, cried out for wisdom, he's already given you his son. He's given you the best. Do you think he would withhold wisdom from you at that point he's one who gives generously he also gives impartially again who gives generously to all and this to all is not to all people in an absolute sense I've already made the point that God is not obligated to respond to the prayers of those who do not trust in him Psalm 34 the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth the all in the context of James 1:5 are the brothers to whom he is writing it is the righteous of Psalm 34 the lord gives to all of his people generously who come to him he gives to all of his people who come to him without exception doesn't matter if you're a rich or poor believer doesn't matter if you're a short or tall believer an african believer or an australian believer doesn't matter if you speak english or french does it? all it matters is that you are a christian And if you lack wisdom for how to respond in the midst of your trials, then you are to call out to your heavenly father and you can expect your heavenly father to hear and respond. He gives generously. He gives impartially. He gives uncritically. Again, he gives to to all generously without reproach. Have you ever asked someone for help and been mocked for it, criticized for it, shamed for it? It takes a lot for some of us to ask for help. To be shamed, mocked, or ridiculed for asking for help can scar people deeply. Perhaps you have had that done to you by others in the past, and so you always hesitate to come to God for help for fear of rejection. Well, God is not like men. Our God will never shame you for asking for help. He will not criticize you for needing to come to him in your time of need. He will not throw your past faults or failures back at you as a means of rebuking you for coming now to ask for help. Oh, now you want to come to me? God's not going to do that. <laughs> to the contrary, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, on account of our great high priest Jesus, and again, the relationship that we have with God by faith in our great high priest Jesus, we're now told that we may with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Another translation says that we come boldly before the throne of grace you know those pictures in the movies where you know there's this king sitting high up on his throne and the people who come into the king they kind got to tiptoe and they you know they're cautious and they don't want to make a false move because maybe the guards will you know throw a spear through them or um, you know the king will get angry at the way he's approaching them this text says we can walk right up to the throne and ask for whatever we want And not have to worry about it. Because yes, we're going to the sovereign God of creation, but the sovereign God of creation is our Father. So he says, come. He gives generously, impartially, uncritically. He gives faithfully. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. This is, of course, where the rubber of our faith meets the road of adversity. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God is not only able but willing, and not only willing but promises you that he will give you wisdom to respond in faith? It will be given. Is what the text says. Do you trust them to do that? Wisdom will not may be given to you when you ask for it. If you believe that, then pray. When you go through your trials, when you struggle with figuring out how to navigate through those trials, how to respond in faith, pray. Verses 2 through 4 was a reminder to think differently about our trials. James said earlier in that passage, Christians think. In this verse, we can summarize it as Christians pray. That's both an imperative and an indicative. It is an imperative, it is a command. Christians, you must pray. But it's also indicative, it's a statement of fact. Christians are people who pray. And again, our confidence is rooted in the person of God. Now, before we move on, it would probably be helpful just to add a quick note on how God gives His wisdom. James doesn't directly address this, but it's good for us to consider it briefly. I'll just mention two ways. The first and most obvious way that God communicates his wisdom is through his word. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You got to love the, the poetry of the Old Testament. It's very picturesque. You can imagine walking through a dark room. And what do you need when you walk through a dark room? You need light. And so you take a lamp with you or you turn the light on, the light switch on when you walk into the room. Because you need something to guide your path so you don't stumble and fall and hurt yourself or break something. The light, the guidance that we need when all around us is dark is the word of God. No, the word of God doesn't speak to every particular scenario in life that you face as you're going through your life. But yes, the word of God is fully sufficient to give us wisdom to figure out how to respond in faith to every scenario in life. It may not tell you exactly which job you need to pick, right? So there's no chapter and verse where you can go to to find out what job to pick in God's word. But there are principles in God's word that'll help you to determine, to use wisdom, to exercise wisdom, to figure out which would be the best one to pick. That's why our attention to the word of God is so important. That's why our worship service is built around the word of God. Every prayer, every song, every corporate reading, every sermon is built upon the truth of the word of God, not conjecture, not our favorite hobby horse, but the truth of the word of God. That is where the people of God find light. It's also why we offer Sunday school, Bible study. It's why we encourage you to read the the word as we study through a particular sermon series. You need a steady diet of the word of God to nourish your souls because the principles, the truths, and the promises of the word of God are a light for us. It is, in fact, an act of faith, faith born out of a heart that is born again. It's an act of faith to read the word of God, to center one's life around the word of God, to view it as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It's an act of faith as we're trusting that, yes, God does continue to speak and that he speaks not in some nebulous or subjective sense to each of us, but in particular situations that he speaks forth from his eternally relevant, eternally powerful, all-sufficient word. God speaks to his word, but he also speaks to his people. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 1 Thessalonians five fourteen and 15. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. People are always waiting to hear what the pastor has to say. People are always wanting for the pastor to correct some foolishness that's going on in the church. And obviously, it's the pastor's role to shepherd, right? According to Ephesians chapter 4, our primary means of shepherding is through our teaching of the flock. Those two other passages, the one in Colossians 3 and the one I read you from 1 Thessalonians 5, are directed to the congregation. You, congregation, you, individual members and members of one another, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. How do you know when you're obeying the command that the word of God should dwell with you richly? You know that you are obeying the command that the word of God must dwell with you richly when you are teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Paul urges the congregation in 1 Thessalonians 5, admonish the idle, those who are idle, those who are lazy. Encourage the faint-hearted, those who are weak and struggling. Help the weak, be patient with them all. These are commands directed not to the pastors, but to the congregation. That is all of our responsibility to one another. The burden of passing along the wisdom of God to the people of God falls on the people of God. That means you and I must be so saturated with the Word of God that we are able to then teach, admonish, encourage, help with patience through our words and our counsel, and yes, even through our songs to help one another. Back to our text. Prayer, again, is an act of faith rooted in the reality of who God is, not in your circumstances. When James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He's not concerned with how dire your circumstances are. He's not concerned with how perplexing your circumstances are. He's not concerned with how immediate or far off your circumstances are. James's concern is that you pray to a God who is greater than all of those things. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Father. He is generous, impartial, uncritical, and faithful to answer our prayers when we call out to him. to pray is an act of faith that means to fail to pray to the point of this passage to fail to pray when you are in need of wisdom in response to your file, pr- trials to fail to pray is an act of unbelief James is going to talk about the need to trust God in the next few verses verses 6 through 8 again he says not only in, if you need help in responding to your trials you need to pray but also when you pray pray in faith We'll move through these a little bit quicker. Verses six through eight. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. To pray is an act of faith. It is an act of faith in the God who is a giver of good things to those who are his. It is an act of faith to a God who is a father to his people. Is an act of faith To ask the one who is not only giving but also impartial, uncritical, faithful in his giving to those who are his children. To fail to pray is really an insult to him. It's to disregard his honor, his character, his grace. It's to say in effect, I don't believe you are who you say you are. That's what you're saying to God when you don't pray and ask for wisdom. I don't believe your commitment to me as a faithful father. Now, I don't think that any of us who are in the faith would actually say that, but that is, in effect, what we are communicating when we fail to pray. And James now addresses that, that issue of our doubt. Again, let him ask in faith with no doubting. It is possible for someone to pray without believing in the one to whom they are praying. And we know that's possible for an unbeliever. Unbelievers often call out in great times of need. They'll cry out, oh, God, if you hear me, oh, God, if you're there, I promise I'll do this. I'll, I'll give more. I'll go to church. I'll read my Bible if you help me with this one thing. When they have never prayed a prayer in faith at any other time in their life. They throw this whopper out there and expect for God to automatically respond. And when he doesn't, what do they do? They get angry. Oh, God doesn't exist. Oh, God must be evil. Oh, God can't do anything to help me because he didn't answer my prayer when they never they they don't have any relationship with him other than this random prayer that they throw out. They expect it for God just to do whatever they want. God's not a genie in a bottle in that respect. He's a person. And just as we wouldn't just do what someone who randomly walks up to us on the street, we wouldn't just do anything they ask us. God is not less than that. He's not just going to do whatever any random person who has no relationship with them asks for him to do. Hebrews eleven six, in the Hall of Faith chapter, says this, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever draws near to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Those two conditions are necessary. That's what faith is. This is what it means to have faith in God. You believe that he is and you believe that he will give to those who seek him. If you don't believe those two things, God's not going to be pleased with that. And he's certainly not going to answer your prayers. Again, verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Remember what is being asked for here. What is being asked for in the context of this passage is wisdom to respond well, to respond in faith to trials. The one who doubts then is one who asks or prays, but who perhaps prays or asks, doubting that God is able to provide wisdom. Or it may even be that they ask or pray for wisdom, but really don't want the wisdom that God has to give. They pray doubting the wisdom of God will be sufficient to guide them through the trial. Their confidence in God, the faithful one, is unstable, James says. And because their faith in the faithful one is unstable, their ability to find stability in anything is shaken. They won't have stability in any area of their life. If you're in the midst of a storm and you get off of your you're on a boat in the midst of a storm and you get off the boat, the only stable place that you have, then you have no hope at all of surviving. James uses a number of analogies. And this is one of them. A the number of analogies in the letter as a whole. And he says the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So in that case, you're not even on a boat. You're just in the middle of the sea. You're you are a part of the wave. You don't have the boat. You're just the wave being tossed about by the winds. When you fail to trust in God, he says that person is double minded, unstable in all their ways. Again, if you can't trust in God, the rock, the one through whom we have a new birth, the faithful one, the one who is a giver, the one who is impartial, the one who's uncritical of us when we come to a need, if you can't trust him, who can you trust? Where can you find peace? Where can you find help? Failing to trust God and his word and his wisdom then leaves us open to all kinds of danger. That's part of the idea. I like this one quote. He says, so the doubter not possessing an anchor for the soul, does not pray to God with a consistency and sincerity of purpose, pray to the shifting winds of motive and desire. He wants wisdom from God one day and wisdom from the world the next. James says in verse 7, that person should not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. There's one important point to make here james is not saying that if you ever doubt at all under any circumstances that god will not answer your prayers if that were the case i don't think any of us would have any of our prayers answered what he has in mind here is more of a whole life attitude of doubt a whole life attitude of waffling in your faith and trusting god one day and not trusting him the next One author said it this way, James is probably thinking of a strong kind of doubting, a basic division within the believer that brings about wavering and inconsistent attitude toward God. And that attitude affects him in every way. He says... James wants us to understand that God responds to us only when our lives reflect a basic consistency of purpose and intent, a spiritual integrity, a basic consistency of purpose and intent. Meaning we have a consistent faith in God, just like Abraham had a consistent faith in God. And Abraham messed up sometimes. Right. Abraham went off the went off the rails a few times in his life. But overall his life was characterized by constantly coming back to and constantly trusting in the sovereign care of his father, the sovereign care of God. Well, when, again, not if, but because we'll all have to ask for wisdom in response to our trials, when you ask for wisdom, when you pray, pray in faith. That's the point. We pray with confidence because we know who God is we know that he is our father and that he is a good father I wonder if that describes your prayers when you offer up prayers to God we should be praying regularly for wisdom again Paul says to pray without ceasing this should be applied regularly and especially as we're going through trials we should pray regularly for wisdom We should pray trusting our Father in heaven. Does that describe your attitude concerning prayer? If not, then perhaps the first prayer ought to be, Lord, increase my faith. Before you ask for anything else, ask the Lord to help you to trust him, to trust his word and his faithfulness. We all need endurance. Again, that's part of James's broader point. We need endurance, and endurance will help us to gain spiritual maturity. In order to get endurance, we have to go through trials. And in order to get endurance as we go through trials, we need help. We need wisdom from God. And so we must pray. We pray to God for wisdom to respond in faith to our trials. And when we must pray, we must pray trusting and remembering the one to whom we pray, that he is indeed good. I'll end with one final quote here. When we are in trial, we just want our circumstances fixed. But God says, Draw near to me and ask me to help you understand why this is happening and to give you perspective on what you're going through and to walk alongside you as the one who possesses all knowledge, eternal perspective, and perfect experience. He says, He is the sovereign King of creation who has made his wisdom available to us and to all followers of Christ. So when you go through trials, ask God to give you wisdom and trust him to give it to you. James tells us to not, not to doubt, and this holds true even when, it, when life is not easy or doesn't make sense. We must believe that God is wise and that he is with us. I think that's an apt description. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who gives us a relationship with you by which we can call you Father. We thank you for this relationship that we have with you through Jesus Christ because this relationship that we have with you through Christ confirms that you will be with us to the end and that you will keep us to the end. And so even if we go through severe difficulties and trials in life, we don't have to worry. We don't have to wonder if you're going to be with us because we know that these things are all a part of your sovereign care for us. Indeed, whatever you ordain is good and right because you are a good and gracious father to us. And as we go through, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would remind them to pray. As we endure trials, remind us to pray and to ask for wisdom when we need it, trusting that you are indeed a good heavenly father to us and that you will answer for our good in your glory. In Christ's name, amen.